This City Wire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies, from healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution. Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. Scottish Mortgage is considered the flagship trust of Edinburgh-based investment managers Bailey Gifford and is the UK's largest investment trust. As with any investment, please note capital is at risk. To find out more, please visit scottishmortgageit.com. Hello, my name is Caroline Hugg and welcome to The Wealth Show from CityWire. In this episode, I'm joined with Bryn Jones, Head of Fixed Income at Rathbones. Bryn joined Rathbones from Merrill Lynch back in 2004 and currently manages the Rathbones Strategic Bond Fund and the Rathbone Ethical Bond Fund, the latter of which we'll be focusing on today. The Rathbone Ethical Bond Fund aims to deliver a greater total return than the IA sterling corporate bond sector over any rolling five-year period after fees. Today, I'll be asking Bryn about running an ethical bond fund under challenging market conditions, touching on how he selects ethical bonds, avoids greenwashing, and has adjusted his fund within the challenging macro backdrop. Bryn, thanks so much for being here today. Hi, how are you doing? So could you start off by telling me a bit more about your ethical bond fund? Um, how do you differentiate yourself from other green bonds? Yeah, the ethical bond fund uh, was launched coming up to 20 years ago uh, in May 2002. Uh, and it was launched with a negative and positive screening process uh, with numerous, numerous exclusions of which there's zero tolerance. Uh, and then we look for sort of positive screening in terms of environment, society, governance. Um, so that so that fund probably differentiates itself somewhat from more modern funds on the basis that they were launched post uh, the Sustainable Development Goals, with a lot of funds now focused purely on SDGs. Um, so there is a differentiation, but also in terms of the investment process that we follow as well. Um, I would say that we, we our investment process, which has been proven by our performance, um, is it, very rigid in, in, in its, its, its processes. Okay. And um, could you explain the credit quality distribution in the fund? Do you have to go further towards high yield for the bonds to be ESG friendly? No, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, a lot of the issuers over the last... Five years have been supranationals in the green and sustainable space, and a lot more high quality corporates have issued. Uh, I think our focus on the fund is to have a, a higher weighting to triple B assets with a underweight duration relative to our peers, because what you tend to find over longer periods is those assets with a higher yield and lower volatility tend to give you a, a better sharp ratio. Um, and that's the kind of utopia that we're looking for, high yield, lower volatility, to give our clients a much better risk-adjusted returns than our peers within the sector. Okay, and as you know, the, the issuance of, of green bonds uh, reached a record high last year. Um, what's your process for selecting ethical bonds, and and how do you avoid you know greenwashing? Well, we have a strict, stringent negative screen so you know to give a few examples you no know, tobacco uh, production no alcohol production no weapons manufacture no oil no mining no animal testing 
and they're quite strict negative. So we, we just adhere to our existing process. So, for example, there might be an oil company that issues a sustainable bond or uh, chemicals or pharmaceuticals, which might do animal testing. Now, whilst the bond is green, it doesn't necessarily fulfill our ethical criteria. So we, we stick to our investment process to ensure that we are fulfilling what we've put in our mandate. And then on top of that, we're looking for some sort of positive contribution to society or environment. So not just does it do no negatives. And I think that's that's our approach. And whilst it might not be uh, specifically linked to sustainable development goals, um, we do also overlay our credit research with MSCI ESG screening, as well as carbon output, um, and the aims of a business to be net zero. So, so we are probably doing both in terms of negative and positive screening, as well as our own sustainable overlay. And that kind of approach means that we tend to avoid greenwashing. Now, I'm not going to talk about peers and how they may well greenwash, but I've always said that ethical, sustainable investing is a little bit like religion. You know, there are many religions in the world and they all have the same sort of kind of moral compass of where they want to get to. But by getting there, they do things very differently. And I think it's very dangerous for us to go around telling other investors that they might be subject to greenwashing when actually the investment process that somebody's put in place is just a different means to get to the same goal that we're trying to achieve. Okay, and how, how do you monitor the companies um, that you invest in to make sure that they're kind of keeping up to ESG standards? So, uh, as I said, we've got, a, we've got a credit overlay. So we're using Sustainalytics and ESG uh, research firms for the credit side, albeit that, you know, the, they cover the majority of our assets, but there is a tile of assets which these businesses you know, just don't cover. Um, so, so not just that though. Uh, uh, we use um, an internal research process through Green Bank, which have been in existence well before the fund existed, and um, they're based out of Bristol, out of uh, Rathbones uh, Green Bank arm, uh, and they spend a lot of time with uh, with a huge database of information, looking at media reports, company reports, uh, and ensuring that they continue to fulfil our um, guidelines. So you've invested in um, the new UK Green Guild. Do you think the the criticisms of this scheme have been fair? And why do you think sales have been somewhat muted? Well, I don't think sales have been muted. I would disagree. I mean, in terms of the Green Guild that was issued, the first one, um, it was uh, 10 times oversubscribed. Um, I think it was the most oversubscribed government Green Deal in history. Um, so I, I tend to disagree with that statement. Um, <clears throat> and if you look at the curve, they trade <clears throat> on the curve, or if not through the curve, the guilt curve tended to suggest that secondary demand has been quite strong also. Um, so I don't think the criticisms about the valuation is correct. Um, in terms of criticisms about the process underlying it, I, 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 there has been a num numerous things. You know, One of the things that we highlighted pre-issue, which the DMO listened to, was no nuclear because, of course, the government's 10-point green plan included small nuclear power stations, which, again, albeit that they might be climate-friendly, are a huge risk when they go wrong. Um, and there's been some other <coughs> uh, criticisms about the sustainable farming in there. But in general, if you look at the uh, underlying use of proceeds, 
uh, I would say more than in general. Uh, I would say you know, near enough in its entirety, it's, it's pretty strong and it's going in the right direction. Um, and, and that's the main thing. We, we're looking at economies here that are transitioning from from, biz, from economies which have been you know, pumping out carbon for, for numerous years into a, into economies which hopefully will become more um, more more environmentally friendly in their energy. But I don't think that's going to happen overnight. So therefore, the transition is the most important thing, and being realistic about that is and supporting the government in that. I think is the key issue. And, um, you know, in terms of ESG ratings and research, equities are well covered in this space. So why is there um, a lack of coverage for fixed income? And is this a challenge for you as an investor? Um, I wouldn't say the lack. Um, I would say it's just not there in its entirety. You know, if you look at, for example, our carbon uh, data, I think Sustainalytics is about 60% of our holdings uh, MSCI in the region of 80-something uh, in terms of various G ratings. And I feel what you tend to find is these single deals, single issues, um, 250 million and below, where there's a broad range of debt relative to the equities. So, yeah, I, I, there is a huge irony that all the all the research companies cover the big companies. So, so a fund can turn up to the market, say 100% of our assets are covered by ESG ratings because they are large cap FTSE 100 companies. Whereas a company that might be investing in social housing, renewable energy bonds or renewable energy, small renewable companies or, or, or charities or charity bonds like we've got, which is not covered, actually have a far in, bigger impact in terms of what they're trying to achieve and yet they're not covered by the rating agencies. So. Um, there is a bit of an irony there, and, and I think it's because of the depth and size of the debt markets relative to, to equity markets. But having said that, I don't really know whether that covers, uh, in my experience of small cap Japanese equities, for example, is, is very limited. And so, again, making a general sweeping statement about equities without the knowledge of that is very difficult for me to do. Yeah, yeah, okay. And um, so the Ethical Bond Fund has been one of uh, Rathbone's most popular strategies in terms of sales. Um, but it has had a recent dip in performance over the past few months. So are you starting to see the demand for ESG dampen this quarter because of the challenging macro environment? And, and yeah, could you explain the more recent dip in your fund's performance? In terms of flows, I don't think we have seen significant outflows. In fact, you know, if we look at the Pridham report and other reports that are out, the IA numbers, you know, it's quite clear that other funds and other houses are seeing much bigger outflows than ourselves. <clears throat> so that's the first thing. Um, if anything, we are seeing as much demand on the ethical side as we've ever done. Um, we are receiving reverse inquiries from numerous jurisdictions outside of the UK, as well as investors in the UK that are continuing to move their portfolios towards a more sustainable future. So I, I think on that side of things, ESG has not been... Um, a weakness. In terms of performance, the performance has dipped on an absolute terms. Uh, naturally, with gilt yields rising at their fastest pace in history, uh, at the same time as credit spreads also widening because of the concerns about one, inflation, and two, Ukraine, Russia, creating all sorts of issues 
um, has meant that an absolute performance, yeah, the performance is down. But on a relative basis, again, versus our peers, um, if you look at year to date, for example, um, the sector has uh, 104 funds in there uh, and we are around 55th. Um, so that's pretty much average for the start of the year relative to our peers. Now, bear in mind, if you go back to what I said earlier about the fact that this fund does have a triple B focus, there are always periods where we tend to underperform in the short term. You know, the GFC was a period where we underperformed, 2011 and 2016. We had taper tantrums and, and Greek uh, financial debt crisis. The, the, the two months of the pandemic, we underperformed. There are always periods where we underperform. If you look at a long-term performance, what you tend to find is that that, as I said earlier, that ability to find that yield, those yielding assets which give you good yield, will over periods give you good compound return. You know, the things that really damage us would be destruction of capital. Um, and, and that comes from either significant outflows, which we've not seen, if anything, we're about neutral, or a deep, deep recession. Um, now, at the moment, I, I don't feel from the economic data that we're seeing that we will see a deep recession in the short term. Having said that, as government bond yields rise, you tend to find history suggests that recessions start becoming more imminent. And that means that we can now steer our portfolio a little bit away from credit risk into higher yielding, lower risk assets and achieve the same kind of yields. So I guess subversively over the next two years, we'll probably see the fund de-risk a little bit. Um, but at the moment, um, you know, we're continuing to pick up carry. And, and history also suggests that when interest rates start rising, they rise because economies are doing quite well. And you can see that economies are still continuing to grow in the UK, US, arguably in Europe a bit. And that means that financials and corporates will continue to perform and taking that carry and return continue give you good compound returns over the medium term. Okay. And, and have you made any adjustments um, to your, your fund um, since the outbreak of war um, in Ukraine, and and yeah, how how will you ensure that your fund, you know, continues to perform well, um, you know, with with um, rising inflation in the future? Yeah. So, uh, firstly, Ukraine, Russia, uh, a terrible situation. I mean, one one of the things that we benefited from was the fact that we didn't have much exposure, if any exposure in Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia. Um, you know, we had some banks like Ingbank, but we went through our entire portfolios, both, you know, all three of the main funds, high quality, strategic, and the ethical bond fund, when Russia was actually on the borders of Ukraine. And we sold things like Ingbank, which had exposures to, um, to, 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 to Russia, We'd reduced our emerging markets and particular funds that had exposure to Belarus, Russia, and, and Ukraine. Uh, we had a small media company in Ethical Bond Fund, which has about £50,000 exposure or $50,000 exposure to, to, to Ukraine, so very insignificant. So we, we, we analysed it quite, quite well. So we didn't have to make that many adjustments. Um, and, of course, spreads have continued to widen somewhat, but they had widened quite significantly up to that point anyway. Um, so there was no, we didn't feel there was any significant need to, to reduce any specific credits. We've been focusing on our insurance companies to find out what kind of risks they've got. 
Um, but again, we don't feel there's any significant capital events that would be created as a result of Ukraine-Russia. Um, in terms of duration, yields have continued to rise because of the inflation pressures. Now, arguably, you know, we, we've meant, we, again, we've been positioned quite well for that, as in relative to our peers in all funds, we're underweight duration. Um, so that's actually benefited us, uh, you know, having a much shorter duration than our peers. You know, arguably, we could have reduced a bit more credit risk, um, but with getting inflows and my view that yield is important, I didn't feel there was a significant need to to to, to reduce the credit risk. If anything, um, you know, fortune favours the brave in periods like this, and you know, buying what you can now get a, a ten-year credit in the portfolio, probably yielding five or six percent, is relatively attractive. Now, arguably, in the short term, with real yields negative and inflation quite high, that doesn't sound too attractive. But you've got to remember, inflation is an annual figure. And whilst inflation over the next few months might hit double digits in the UK, um, all else being equal, one expects within 24 months of inflation to be running down at 1%. Um, and that would mean that you know, buying yields now is actually quite attractive. Now, I'm not necessarily saying we've reached the peak in yields, and I do think government bond yields could top a little bit higher. But if you go back, you know, over the last five years and said, well, I've got my risky portfolio here of equities and I want to hedge against it. You had to pay to hedge, basically, in nominal terms. You had to pay to hedge that portfolio. Now you get paid to hedge your portfolio. Your, your, you know, your more risky part of your portfolio, you can hedge with an extra bit of yield. That's becoming more attractive. And the key to me as well is when the yield, what we used to call about the reverse yield gap, many years ago, that was always a significant issue between the yield that you could get from bonds and the yield you could get from equity. Well, for the last five years, it kind of made sense to buy equities because you could get a higher yield and you compound that yield over 10 years. You know, your equity portfolio would still need to fall 30% before you would have been better off buying government bonds or perhaps 15% relative to credit. But now that's reversed a bit. And... And that's the key thing. So asset allocators will start allocating again back to fixed income and particular pension funds, which might be fully funded. There's more fully funded pension funds will now be looking at fixed income markets more attractively. So whilst I don't think right now is the time to be buying gilts, and I do think gilt yields will high, go higher, I do think that over the next 12 months, it's going to be a reasonable entry point. Okay. Okay, I think those are all the questions that we have time for today. Um, Bryn, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, excellent. This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies, from healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution. Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk.